Well, good morning. I'm glad to see you all branches. We are going to be working into our new series here, Labeled. We're starting our spiritual growth campaign. I'm excited about this, excited about what's gone on. Last week, we invited you guys into groups. We invited you to get engaged with community groups and different conversations amongst each other, and even to start groups. In fact, nine of you, nine people in our church, stepped forward to actually start groups. One, one young woman was going to start two groups, one at work and one with her friends. So uh, 10 different groups started last week. We're going to have over 550 people participating in this series. So I want to encourage you, if you, have, if you left last week going like, I don't know, maybe, um, really want to challenge you to step into a group, get engaged or start a group with one of the packets that Justin has out and the small groups team has out in the courtyard. So this is an awesome opportunity for all of us to get connected, to grow together and to go deeper together. I don't want to rehash last week, but um, definitely want to encourage you, if you're still thinking about it, to end the thinking now and jump in. So let's, let's go ahead and pray together as we start moving into the service. Would you join with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to get into your word and to get into the conversations in groups over this idea of labels. And we pray that you would just help expose those and show us the importance of understanding labels and what they mean in our lives so that we might be able to further glorify you, to live for your name, to make a difference in this world for you where otherwise we might be hindered and held back. And we pray that you would bless this time and open our hearts to not only know and understand, but to live this out. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you guys remember either when you're growing up or you have recently done this with your own kids, the family photo? Anybody remember the family photo? All right, family photos for my family right now is we go out into a rare, rare abandoned field or a broken down home or something like that where it looks really industrial and then you, look, you get some black and white photos or highly exposed, you know, that kind of stuff. Not when I was growing up. When I was growing up, my mom got me in a nice little suit. My sisters were in cute little dresses. My dad was in a suit. My mom was in a dress. And you went to Sears. Anybody go to Sears for their photos? Yeah. Sears was the place. Had their little Photoshop in the back. And you walked in. And everybody had to line up like little ducklings and sit down and smile pretty and all this stuff. Well, I get ready. I remember what my sisters looked like. I remember I'm wearing this tie. And it's a little uncomfortable or whatever. And um, in the, eventually, I go in. My mom's like, I want you to take a photo by yourself. She wanted all the kids to have their own individual photo. And so I stand there and they pull this shade down behind me and uh, they take the picture and this is what comes out. So this is the picture of Greg the Little Scholar at six years old. So I don't know if it was prophecy or what was going on, but uh, I wound up living my life in a study. But what was funny about this photo is my mom raved about this photo. My dad raved about this photo. This is the one photo that was in almost anywhere you could find my photos because this was the iconic photo for them of, of me. And so I'm a six-year-old, and I hear them raving about this photo and excited about this photo, and all I see is one thing about the photo, and I think this is the thing that makes this an amazing photo. I'm not smiling. I've got this, like, serious Mona Lisa, like, look on my face or something, right? And, and so I'm thinking, that's, the, that's it. That's the key to an amazing photo for me. Don't smile. Just, just, just just don't show the fat off in your cheeks and just stand stoic and it looks good. And so I proceed for the next, I don't know, up and through junior high, no matter whether it was a school photo or a staged photo, I didn't smile. In fact, I have proof. Here's my junior high photo. I'm not smiling. (laughs) 
This is awful. This is actually my eighth grade year, uh, my eighth grade year photo. And, and what's funny about, well, that first, that first photo ingrained in me a way of living out photo, photographs and how I should take a photograph. This is a totally different story. I mean, there's a problem with this photo, multiple problems with this photo. For, first of all, I don't know why I didn't thank you for laughing at me. Um, I, I don't... <laughs> I'll talk about what this means to me in a minute. But the, uh, my hair in this, I don't know, I didn't like barbers or something. I, I was scared of hairdressers, so I didn't cut it. And so it was an awful mop on my head. My, my nose is getting longer, and I'm wearing a sweater. I'm wearing a sweater in an, eighth, in an eighth grade photo. What am I thinking? This is ridiculous. And this photo here is huge to me. Um, this is the photo that if you were to ask me what I feel like I look like inside, this is it. Somewhere back there in junior high, this is the ingrained perspective I received from my peers and myself. And something inside this, this is the photo that just gives me nightmares. This is you. This is who you are. Stuck in eighth grade, being pummeled, made fun of. And why did God make us aware of ourselves when we're at our most awkward? I have no idea, but that was where I'm at. And this was overwhelming to me. And it became for me a label. And it exists as a label if I let it in. Just as the first photo was a label for how I took photos, this label would be the label for me until I was saved in my junior year of high school. It would be the number one perspective of myself until I came to know Jesus Christ. And there are things in all of our lives that label us. There are things in all of our lives that have stamped on us a mark, something that tells you this is who you are, this is what you're going to be like, this is what you have been like, and it marks you for who you are. And what we want to do in this series is to really examine those labels in our hearts. We really want to get in deep and begin to say, what is going on? What are we calling ourselves? What do we say about ourselves? Because the label that you wear shapes the life that you live. The labels that you put into your life are the very ones that will come out of your life. The labels that you've held on to or that you've thrown off or the ones that you want so desperately and you're chasing, those are the labels that shape the way your life will go and how you will act amongst people. And this is a biblical concept. This isn't just psychology we're getting into. This is a very biblical concept that's found throughout scriptures. It begins pretty early on, but I want to take you to a particular character to kind of unveil this to you, to show you how labels can work and how they can begin to affect our life. And this particular character, if you've begun reading your Bible or it's your first time in it, you may have already met him. And all of us who've been in the Bible, you know who... Jacob is. There, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, the father of the faith, and, and Jacob is a powerful name bearer for the Christian faith and for the Jewish faith. And as we examine the story of Jacob, you and I are going to see very clearly that we all wear labels and that these labels do indeed begin to affect the way that we live. See, you, you and I, we all wear a label, whether you know it or not, and that label could be as simple as something like your name. And this is the case for Jacob. And so as we begin with Jacob, we start with his father, Isaac, and his mother, Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca loved each other. They got married. They were, um, there was a, there's a beautiful love story about how, um, how they found him, how Rebecca was brought to Isaac and all that stuff in the chapter before. But now they were married, and in, they're in love, and they want to have children, and they can't. 
Rebecca's barren. She's not, she's not having children. And so Isaac praised the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. So now the miracle has occurred. She has, she's going to have children. And yet the, the children struggle together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? If I'm blessed to have children, what's going on? So she inquired of the Lord. And so we're going to look at this, these chapters. So if you want to open to Genesis chapter 25, I want you to be there. You can mark in your own Bibles, kind of examine and look at what we're looking at and follow along. I'll put it up on the screen for you guys so you can follow along either on the podcast or, or on live stream right now. But I want you to be able to kind of follow through here and examine this because it's important. Because immediately she receives a label from the Lord. So she went and inquired the Lord and the Lord said to her this, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were complete, behold, there were twins in her womb. And so we stop there for a second. We have this picture of this lady who's going to have these children, and she's told something by God. The younger child of the two is going to rule over the older. That's not how the case was. The, the firstborn usually received the inheritance, usually was given the, uh, given the rights of the family and all those pieces involved. But not in this case. There's something that happens in Rebecca's heart. You see, if God tells you something about your kid before they're born, don't you think that would affect the way you view them? I think it would begin to impact the way that you treated them and the way that you loved them. So it's no wonder that later we'll find out the secondborn, who is Jacob, will wind up being the, a mama's boy and the one who stays in the house most often. The two other labels that, that don't really affect him too much, but they're there. And instead we move on. So she knows her son, younger son is going to be the one that rules. And so along comes dad as she's about to give birth. The first she comes, this, uh, she, gives, she gives birth and there are twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. So if we were to translate all of this into English, um, Esau has two names, Edom and Esau. The word Edom means red and the word Esau means hairy. So they literally named the kid Harry, not H-A-R-R-Y, but Harry as in fuzzy. And, and so he is fuzzy. Later, they'll take goat skins and cover over Jacob, and that's how hairy this guy is. I mean, he is a fuzzball to the max, and so they should have named him Chewbacca, but they don't. They name him Esau. And so Esau is, is born, they pull him out, and dad's like, yes, Harry. Isaac's not very good at this. And so he sets son down, and he goes, Harry. So you're only guessing next kid that's going to come out, he's going to pull him out, he's like, smooth, you know, and sets him, but that's not what he does. Instead, what happens is we get this. Afterward, his brother came out holding and with his hand, holding Esau's heel, clutching it. And so dad sees this and he names the son Jacob. The name means deceiver, liar, one who will take advantage of you because he's going to grab his heel to take advantage. He goes, Harry, liar. How would you like to be named by your dad? Little deceiver. Hey, little deceiver, come here. If your name is Jacob or Jake, you might want to consider changing your name. No, I'm just kidding. He's this deceiver situation. But imagine, how many of you were made fun of your name as a kid? 
Anybody, every, I think everybody at some point goes through some kind of name calling or, or making fun of your name. Mine was, name is Greg, so obviously I was Greg the Egg or whatever. It never really worked that well. So one of my friends decides he has a better name because it ticked me off, and that was Peggery. And I'm like, Peggery, that's stupid. Except he would sing it at me in the My Buddy tune. Anybody remember My Buddy or Kid Sister, the commercial? So he'd sing like, My Peggery, My Peggery. And I'd be like, I'm going to kill you. And I was like, first grade, all burned out, been out of shape about my name because because it's my name. You don't mess with my name. And yet, can you imagine what poor Jacob is going through with Harry? Older brother Harry, he's like, what's up, Harry? He's like, yeah, that's right. Check out my chest hair. I'm only four. <laughs> and over here is, is, is like, now what do you mean? Liar, deceiver, punk. You know, it's like poor Jacob is getting made fun of with his name because it's liar, deceiver, cheater. You know, we all carry names. They're on us. Maybe your name was given to you and you know what your name means. And maybe you wonder, why did my parents name me that? It doesn't have any meaning. Or why did my parents name me that? It has such a bad meaning. Some of us actually don't have names that we understand from our parents. You've named yourself. You know, you walked up and you said, I'm an alcoholic. Or, I'm, a, I'm, I'm divorced. I'm single. I'm, I'm just constantly angry. I'm, I'm a businessman. I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative. I'm a liberal. I'm a Democrat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, how many I am statements do we make about ourselves? You see, we all carry labels. We all place labels on ourselves. And those labels ingrain into our lives and they begin to move and change us and they begin to shape us. Some of those names are, are very obvious and others of those labels are not so obvious. Some of them have been buried so far back they're like a yearbook photo you long forgot until you opened it up and went, oh, I remember that. The labels affect us. You see, the labels shape our lives. Our labels come to affect who we are and how they affect us every single day. And labels of microphones falling out are good too. So, And I want, to, I want to focus in on how Jacob's label affected his life. Look at Genesis chapter 27. Flip over two chapters and you'll begin to see a change in how Jacob works. Now Jacob early on has already kind of tested this deception water and, and got his brother to despise his birthright and, and Esau sold off his right to the property and everything for his father He's for a bowl of stew. And so you know, there's not a lot of love for Esau in the book. And yet Isaac shows up and suddenly something happens. Dad or dad's getting old. Isaac's eyes are getting cataracts and he can't see clearly, can't see who people are. And so he calls in his oldest son and says, I want to bless you. I don't know if I'm going to die soon. I don't know how this is going to work. And so mom overhears it. And so it says this. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went out to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare me delicious food that I may eat it, bless you before the, uh, before the Lord and before I die. And so in verse 8, it, it's interesting because she goes, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock, bring me two young goats so that I may prepare them delicious food for your father as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father, eat so that he may bless you before he dies. And then Jacob says this in verse 11. You can look down in your Bible for a second. He says, but mom, how could I do such a thing? I'm not a deceiver. 
I would never lie to my father. That would be wrong and wicked. It's not what he says. He says, behold, my brother Esau's hairy. And I'm smooth, which should have been my name, but it wasn't. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Notice he's not figuring out, oh, that's bad. I shouldn't deceive. No, he believes it. Yeah, I could deceive him. No problem. We just got some issues. One hairy boy over there and me are very different. How are we going to work this out? And he may curse me. I may get in trouble. I don't want to get into this. His mom said, well, let your curse be on him, on me, my son. Only obey my voice. Go and bring them to me. So he, verse 14, it says, So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. And Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her, old, her older son. Uh, by the way, it says his best garments, right? And, and later, later Jacob's going to say, Man, these smell really like you've been out in the field. I don't know what those smelled like, but that's pretty gross hairy man with smelly clothes, the best ones, and put on the older son, which were her own in the house, and put on Jacob, her younger son, and the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. That's ridiculous. So she put the delicious food in the bread, and I'll put it in prepared. It just goes on to where suddenly he shows up to his father in verse 18. So he went to his father and said, my father, and he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob begins the deception. Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau. I'm the hairy guy, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up, eat my game, that, you may, that my soul may, your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it you found it so quickly, my son? He's suspicious, can't see well, but he, he, he's not clear about this. He said, oh, because the Lord your God granted me success. And then Isaac said to him, please, come near. Then I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really Esau or not. <laughs> Feels him says, huh. So Jacob went near his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And didn't recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it here near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him. He ate and he brought him with wine and drank. And his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss. Let me kiss you. So, he, so his son came near and he kissed him. All this is testing. Is this really him? And Isaac is completely duped by his son deceiver. And so he takes him. He smelled the smell of Esau's garments and blessed him and said, Ah, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of the heaven, the fatness of the earth, the plenty of the grain of the wine. Let the people serve you and the nations bow down to you. Be a Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And suddenly the very statement that Rebecca knew was going to be true comes out. Because of deception. Now a whole other topic there, but the name is a ver- the name is important. The name of Jacob is highlighted. You think, oh, this is about deception, this is about don't do this. No, it's about Jacob's name because suddenly Esau rushes back in after after Jacob's left, and Esau's like, What? You gave it to my brother? That was him. He, and then this is his words about his brother. Esau says, Is he not rightly named Deceiver? Didn't you name him correctly? Way back when he was clinging on to my heel, he's going to get every advantage over me. Didn't you rightly call him the advantage taker, the deceiver, the liar? 
He stole my, he took my birthright and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. I don't get it, but something in the name of Jacob fixed his life on deception. Oh, it doesn't stop here. Esau wants to kill Jacob. Jacob takes off to go to his family um, up north so he can be safe. And next thing you know, all he does is run into deception after deception after deception. As his father and as, uh, as his, um, his uncle Laban, he's going to marry his cousin, which is a whole other co- conversation. Um, ancient world was okay. Um, and he gets the wrong wife. Laban tricks him, deceives him. Wakes up the next morning with the wrong wife. How that works out is a whole other story. And the next thing you know, he marries the right girl. And now he's got two wives. Both of them are involved in trying to deceive him so they can have kids. He's involved in trying to deal with Uncle Laban's deceptions as he's trying to change his wages. And so what does Jacob do? Deceives him to get away. And his wife ends up deceiving dad to get away. And they all end up in this lies and mess of deception. Because the labels that we wear shape the life that we live. Jacob lives out a deceiver because in his soul he's been called the deceiver. He is a deceiver and he lives as a deceiver. And the same thing happens for all of us, guys. The names that we pick, the names that we use, the things that we call ourselves affect us. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words are what define you. And that's exactly what Proverbs is saying. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat of its fruits. You can kill a man with your words. You can grind them into the ground or you can lift them up and empower them. Our tongues are powerful, powerful things when spoken to ourselves and spoken to others. Our words matter and the labels we choose matter. They matter so much. They can affect an entire life. I was reading Matthew West's book that he's come out called Hello, My Name Is, and in it he relates an event that occurred in his town as he was writing. As the police reports came in, he found out about this young girl who had been taken away, taken away by CPS because she was being abused by her parents. Parents arrested and locked away. This girl with bruises and cuts all over her body was brought in and interviewed by the CPS worker, and they leaned down to the little girl and said, Sweetheart, what's your name? And she said something and said, babe, we didn't hear that. What's your name? And she said, idiot. She'd been called idiot so many times by her parents, she assumed that's what her name was. Do you think she's not going to be affected by that label and by those things that were attached to that kind of a label all of her life? Absolutely. Labels are powerful to shape who we are. Um, The Heath brothers in their book, Switch, describe another opposite situation, one of power, not one of death, and a lady named Crystal Jones who began in 2003 to work for a group called Teach for America. She was assigned to teach a first grade class in the elementary school of Atlanta. They had no kindergarten, so many of these kids struggled to to know their alphabets, to read, um, and their math skills and all this stuff. She said, I had two or three students who could recognize kindergarten garden sight words, and I also had some that couldn't even hold their pencils. And her job was to bring these children and bring them up, and she said, no, I want to bring them beyond. And so her concept came to this, and she stated this as the goal to the children in their first day. At the beginning of the school year, she announced the goal to her class would be that would captivate every student, and this was what it would be. By the end of the school year, you're going to be third graders. And she's not literally, of course, but their skill level would be third graders. Now, this galvanized the kids. They're like, yeah, because they know what a third grader is. They're bigger. They're stronger. They're cooler. I want to be a third grader. That's how we think when we're in first grade. Third grade's cool. 
These kids were excited, but that's not where she left it off. One of her first efforts to cultivate a culture of learning in her classroom, she started to call her students scholars and asking them to address one another that way. She gave them a label, you're a scholar. You need to talk to your fellow scholars as scholars. When people came to visit her classroom, she introduced the class as a group of scholars and asked them to define the word for their guests. And they would say, they would all shout, a scholar is someone who lives to learn and is good at it. In fact, one day when one of the scholars was taken out of the room, the kid, some of these kids went, oh. Now, for most of us growing up in elementary school, the kid got taken out of the room. You're groaning because you're going like, man, I wish I could get out of the room. That'd be nice. But not these kids. They were groaning in pity because they, because they were asked, why were you groaning? They said, oh, they're going to miss some scholar time, some opportunity to learn something new. By the end of that year, oh, they had 90% of the kids were reading at, at or above a third grade level. And these were the same kids who nine months earlier didn't even know the alphabet. Can you imagine the power of a label when it's believed? And some of us are walking around with labels and names that we've collected way back in junior high, way back in elementary school, way back when our parents named us, or we picked them up from an abusive spouse or from an angry boyfriend or some situation that's gone on, and you have labeled and carried that label, and it has affected you. You've lived into it. You've almost resigned yourself to it and said, this is just who I am. And some of these labels are false. And many of these labels, if not most, are only temporary. Because there are labels out there that are more powerful than these labels we walk around with in life. And what I want to point you to is, is to first ask this question, this what labels do I hold question. We need to ask ourselves this. What labels are inside? What labels am I holding? What labels are not so obvious to me, but they're there because we all have labels we need to identify those labels so we can do something with those labels. We can tell if they're temporary or permanent. We can tell if they're lies or if they're truth. But if you don't expose it and know it, you can't renounce it if you need to. And so we need to ask ourselves, what labels do I hold? Because those labels are the ones that are affecting you, whether you know it or not. In fact, there's another set of labels, though, that we need to know. And there's those labels that we need to install because God gives the truest labels. God gives us the true labels. And we need to know these true labels. And we need to have these true labels imparted into ourselves. You see, Jacob has a very interesting setup suddenly when he comes to know his true label. All his life, he is the deceiver, the deceiver, the deceiver. So he finally deceives his uncle to get away from him. His father-in-law gathers his family, rushes away, comes to this brook where he's about to step back over into his own ter territory, the territory promised to him and his family. And he's going, okay, we're about to go over there. Um, um, Father-in-law shows up. His wife deceives him. He leaves. Everything's good until he hears brother Esau, Mr. Harry, is on his way to kill him with 400 men. This is not a good sign. And in a panic, Jacob begins to pray. And he had had a vision of God before he had gone off to get married. And that vision of God had said, I promise you, you'll be fine. I promise you, I'll bring you back a company. And he prays to that God, asking that God for help. And then a very odd thing begins to occur in chapter 32. He separates his family up and sends them across the, the brook at Kidron. 
And so they cross, or sorry, the, the, the fork at Jabbok. So he sends them across, and he took them, and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, everybody who's grown up in Bible school is like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. I'm like, but how did that work? You know, Jacob's alone on, in the middle of the night, and some guy walks by, and he's like, hey, hey. So I was going, it's like, um, like, how do you get in a wrestling match with a complete stranger? It's like, what are you doing? Oh, what are you doing? Oh, what are you doing on my side of the river? Oh, you're on my side of the river? Oh, you want to wrestle? Okay, let's do it. And that's, that's, I guess. Random stranger, Jacob decides, let's wrestle. And they're into it. And they're wrestling all night, back and forth, trying to get it. And this is Greco-Roman wrestling. This isn't like WWF wrestling or E wrestling. And, um, the, you know, you always use your hip as your pivot point. You're trying to knock the other guy over. And they're wrestling all night long with this and so he takes them and this guy wrestles with him to, until the breaking of the day when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. He touched his hip socket. Touch. And Jacob's hip was pulled out of joint and he couldn't wrestle anymore with him. Because if you don't have this hip, you can't use it as your pivot point. There's no power. No, Jacob has no power. And it says this, then he said, let me go for the day is broken. Let me go. Let me go. Image a picture anywhere of you? He's grabbed onto this man and won't let go. It's a picture just like his birth. The man says, let me go. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And he said, what is your name? And he says, deceiver, Jacob. Suddenly this man says, and he said, your name shall no longer be deceiver but Israel. You're no longer Jacob, you're Israel. You are the God wrestler. You are he who has striven with God and prevailed. For you have striven with God and with men and you have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, what is it that you ask me my name? Why is it that you say this? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen, saying I have seen God's face. I see him face to face, yet he has spared my life. Wow. Here, this man is a pre-incarnate Christ. It is the Son of God to come to wrestle, and he's wrestling with God. He is in this match of his life, and Jacob won't let go. It's the beginning of his new life, and what God says, you are no longer the liar. You're he who wrestles with God. You are the one has prevailed. Imagine living your life if you had had God's true image of you at the beginning. You're the God wrestler. You're the one who took over. You're the, you're the one who has overcome. You are the guy who can handle this. Man, he wouldn't have done anything. He would have been like, I don't need to deceive people. I'm the God wrestler. And the very name, the label shifts everything. He becomes Israel, but he limps away always permanently marked by this encounter with God. You see, this is the picture of what happens when God comes to relabel us. He comes to relabel us when Jesus Christ dies on the cross and bears our sins and our old identities, all of our labels assumed upon him so that when he dies, we die with him. And when we rise, we raise and we limp, remembering wounded, yes, our pride, injured completely. Our source of power, gone. 
But God has rebranded us. He has relabeled us. He has renamed us. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, hey, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, according to the way the world accounts things. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're a new creation, he says. Those old labels are done. They're over. They're finished. They were temporary. They're there. They may have been true for a time. They don't need to be true anymore. You don't have to label yourself by the divorce. You don't have to label yourself by the affair. You don't have to label yourself by your sin because God calls you saint. You may say you're an alcoholic. He calls you an overcomer. You may say that you are just an orphan. He says, you're my son, you're my daughter. God has a name for you, a label for you that is more true than anything else because he knows who you are throughout eternity, not just right now. He just doesn't know who you are in the whole of your life. He knows who you are forever beyond death. This God knows you that well. And he's called you something. He's labeled you. He says, you're my new creation. You are the heirs. Yes, this takes time to develop. It takes time to get going. It says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new, which is being renewed in knowledge. Being renewed in knowledge. We have to learn it. We have to grow in the knowledge of God and what he's told us in his promises about you, in his promises from Christ his name's for you, that he calls you saint and not sinner. He calls you son and daughter. We have to learn to walk in these things. We, can't, we have to learn to put these new labels on and let them begin to be expressed in our lives. And that's going to take some, some stumbling and bumbling. It took Jacob. Jacob was definitely the God wrestler. He was a man after God. And he calls him his God ever, ever after that point every single time. But still, Jacob had to struggle with the fact his sons would lie to him that his youngest had died. He would still wrestle through the various deceptions that he saw. But in the end, as he rose up to bless his sons, he believed fully and full well that the promise that God had given him was his, that they would inherit the land and that they would be a great nation. And so it's no wonder he stands up in front of his son Joseph before his two grandsons he had never met before. And God Almighty, he says to him, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I'll make you fruitful, multiply you, and I'll make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. He didn't own the land at this point. He's in Egypt in an emergency relief center as a refugee of a famine. But he still believed that this was going to be the answer God gave him. And so he says, now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. And Reuben and Simeon, as Reuben and Simeon are, and the children that you fathered after them, they can be yours. They shall be, call, they shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Then their inheritance... And he would bless them in the name of Israel, not in the name of Jacob. And he would bless them as Israel so that the name Israel became the name of the nation that came from him and is still the name of that nation today. He who has striven with man and God and prevailed, he became the prevailing one, not the deceiver. 
The power of God's labels then need to, be appre- need to be apprehended by us. We need to grab hold of them and we need to wrestle through them until they're born in us and developed out of us. And that's what we're doing this series. We're going to unearth those very things in us so that we can come to a place where we can name what those old labels are and renounce them if necessary or say, hey, yeah, they're temporary, but this is what God has said about me and I want this to be a part of who I live and this is what I'm going to aim for. See, I hope that what we do is we take God's labels and we let them shape our lives from here. But that means we have to identify them, which is what we're going to have to identify those old labels. That's what this small group this week is about. If you've joined a group, if you haven't joined a group, you need to. This midweek study is to help you unearth what are those labels? How do I know them? If you want to start a group, we've got, we've got packets. Just go out, do it with your wife. Do it with, uh, do it with some family. Do it with a couple of friends and neighbors that you're already hanging out with. But just start this to identify these labels because we need to see these old, false, temporary, broken labels for what they are and reject them. Or we need to turn around and receive the true ones of God and begin to walk in them. And we need to empower each other with the true ones. It's powerful if the, if the tongue has life and death in it. We want to give life to one another. And we want to give it rightly. That's what I think Olive Branch should be, is a place that gives life with our words, gives life with the true labels of God. And that's what we get to do to each other in our groups and here on Sunday morning. So let's engage this study. Let's dive in for these next six weeks. Unearth these things and begin to walk in what God has truly called us. And see what happens. I believe he's going to transform us. I believe he's going to make us and motivate us to a new level of living in him. To where we will love, live, and share him in ways that we never imagined because we know who he already knows we are. Let's pray. God, there is just so much involved in this understanding of you and in what you've called us. I pray that you would help us to begin to see them, connect them into our hearts and our lives. We begin to encourage each other with these truths and with these labels that you have given to us and your promises in your work. Because you are willing to die for our sins, give us a relationship with you and give us these new identities. We pray that you'd help us to live them out. We thank you for this opportunity to be in it and to study it. We pray for your aid now in Jesus' name. Amen.